welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast, getting inside the sports industry and recording it on audio. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly, I'm the editor at large at Sports Pro. Uh, very happy to be back and to welcome back on the line Sports Pro Editorial Director Michael Long. Hi Mike. Hi Owen, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you? Good. Very well, thanks. Very well. Excellent. Uh, Mike, we are, we've only got you for a short period of time um, because we're doing something a little bit different this week. We are looking at SportsPro's annual list of the world's 50 most marketable athletes. Uh, we'll be heading over shortly to SportsPro Towers to discuss the list in greater depth with Tom Bassam and Sam Karp. Um, but before we do that, we're just going to get from you a sense of what the list is about, remind people what some of the criteria are, look at some of the things that we've done differently this year, uh, the role of data partner Hookit, uh, a few things like that, and get some of your impressions on the list uh, before we join the guys. So I have had even less involvement this year, I think, than I did last year. So I'm going to be joining our listeners on a wild ride through the world's most marketable athletes list um, and getting a sense of some of your thinking um, and you know where this feature is, is going. But I would suggest to everybody that the way to experience this podcast is to have read the list first <laughs> because we'll yeah. be discussing our impressions, obviously, of those involved rather than doing a 40-minute drum roll for the number one. Who is, Mike? Who is Naomi Osaka, the... Uh... The WTA star, number one in the world, tennis player. Um, but you're right, Owen. As you say, it's a bit of a wild one this year. Um, <laughs> and uh, it seems to get wilder every year. What are we now? Ten, ten years of the list, unbelievably. A so it's the, it's the 10th edition of the list. Mm. Uh, it started in 2010. So it's one of those uh, where it's not quite a 10th anniversary, but it is. We are, we are 10 versions in. And yeah, some very interesting stories this year. But first of all, why don't you just give us a refresher of what the most multiple athletes list is, because it is not the most popular, most famous, most successful list or highest earning. <laughs> no, indeed, indeed. It's not a it's not a power 50. It's not a ranking of uh, it never never been a ranking of the, you know, 50 uh most marketable names in sport, as many people would have it, the most famous names, if you like. Throughout throughout the years, we've always looked to assess athletes uh, from across the world, across all sports, according to their marketing potential over the coming three-year period. So we're looking ahead, kind of factoring in uh, recent events, uh, athletes' current trajectory, if you like, um, combining that with, with a kind of broader sports marketing, athlete marketing trends of the day. And, uh, you know, aiming to predict, really, more than anything, uh, who are the commercial stars of tomorrow? I mean, one of the, the kind of founding principles of the list, the, one of the founding strap lines, I suppose, was, uh, you know, these are the 50 athletes uh, to invest in now. So if you're a brand marketer uh, looking to invest your marketing budget on partnering with an athlete, striking up an endorsement deal with a, with a, a professional athlete, uh, these are the ones that offer you most bang for your buck. Um, and we assess them according to kind of... Uh, I suppose, highly debatable criteria such as charisma and their, their willingness to be marketed, um, but also, you know, their, their, uh, the size of their home market, their, their age, 
Um, and as I say, yeah, their the general trajectory. So yeah, we, we've never claimed any object, objectivity with this list. It's more, I would say, read it as a as a kind of conversation starter, conversation piece, where it's a, a compilation of, of stories, uh, 50 individual athletes with individual stories, um, you know, names that, that brands can attach themselves to and, and, and tell their own stories through, I suppose. And uh, there's no small amount of kind of guesswork, albeit kind of informed guesswork that goes into this, uh, into compiling this list. Um, and yeah, and then it's a case, Owen, as you well know, having been involved in many editions of this list, albeit not this year's uh, edition. Um, as you well know, there are pitfalls aplenty. It's, it's, very, it's very difficult sifting through the kind of hyperbole and the, and the hype that is out there around certain athletes. You've got uh, you know, draft picks and team sensations all over the place and, and, and whatnot. But it's looking at it as, as objectively as possible, if you like, and looking at commercial value. And, then, and once again, just... To bring it back, uh, you know, it is looking at potential athletes' marketability, and obviously, there's no agreed kind of industry-defined consensus around what constitutes marketability. So, I suppose, you know, looking back over the last nine or ten years, um, the very concept, I suppose, of, of marketability has has evolved in mm. line with the kind of broader trends in the space, the rise of social media. Uh, new means and methods of, of media consumption and changing kind of consumer uh, attitudes and habits. So uh, there's obviously a lot to a lot a lot that goes into the list, a lot of debate, a lot of discussion, and ultimately the end result is a lot of uh, controversial pits. So, uh, but it's all fun, <laughs> all fun, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, all fun. Um, yeah, we'll get onto some of those broader questions of marketability in just a sec because I think that's really instructive um as to what an exercise like this can achieve uh in 2019 as opposed to 2010 but there is a measure of objectivity injected into this process um by our official data partner hook it who have evolved their criteria for the list which made its debut last year um what can you tell us about that yeah, as you say, with Hook It, uh, the social media kind of analytics and monitoring company um, first created what was the athlete marketability score for us last year. Uh, and this aimed to kind of bring a degree of, of science or, you know, objectivity, I suppose, to uh, what is ultimately the art of assessing athlete uh, poten marketing potential, commercial potential. Um, so they created a score out of 100 that looked at an athlete's effectiveness when it comes to promoting brands on social media. Um, and it, it aims to kind of mitigate reach and follow account. Um, so yeah, score out of 100 looks at things like posting habits, uh, content creation, um, and then crucially kind of fan and follower engage engagement on promoted content. So this is uh, looking at promoted posts in particular, the regularity with which athletes are promoting um, and how those promoted posts perform relative to the rest of the content they're putting out. So score out of 100, a number of subscores go into that. Um, so we're looking at, uh, or Hooker are looking at things like post proportion, what they call velocity. Um, so that is, is the athlete regularly posting promoted content? How many times a month are they promoting that, that content on average? Mm. Um, and things like quality, share of voice. So how many other brands are, are being mentioned across an athlete's promoted posts? Um, that's obviously, uh, 
key, I suppose, in terms of the content context of the list is, you know, we often look for clean slates from a commercial p- perspective, you know, athletes that have room within their portfolio. Often, often you find speaking to uh, athlete agents and agencies that, you know, an athlete can only um, only really sign with, uh, obviously depends on what, they, what is factored into their, their agreements and their partnerships with brands, but they can only, there's a finite number really of brands that they can work with given the time constraints of their, their day job, which is obviously, uh, their, 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 their chosen sport, their profession. So, um, yeah, hook it. Uh, I'm not sure how well I've explained that there. Hook it <laughs> probably give you a, uh, a, a clearer, uh, explainer, but yes, it's, it's, as you say, a degree of ob- objectivity. That that was the intention of this. Uh, yeah, there is a hook it explainer on sportsbromedia.com um, if anyone needs that as a kind of uh, a reference or a guide. Just so, yeah, use that as a, as a guide. But I think uh, generally, I think this was a, a recognition, you know, partnering with Hook It and bringing them on, on board for the list in particular was recognition of the kind of rising influence of athletes on social media and the rising influence mm. of social media uh, within the context of, of sports marketing and um, the way brands value an athlete association ultimately and how they can communicate to their target audience yeah. and, and leverage a, a, an individual's uh, own platform. and um, So that was the thinking. Yeah, and the importance as well of measurement, not just in terms of who you're working with, but how you're allocating the spend on your activities with that individual. Looking at the list now, I mean... You know, if we we haven't got the original one or two versions in front of us, but it, it will probably be a more diverse-looking set of athletes, not just in terms of who they are and where they come from, but what their stories are. And I think that that is probably the way in which this has changed the most, the idea of what constitutes a marketable athlete. It's not just, you know, you used to be looking for the whole package, didn't you? Someone who was you know, uh, a superstar in their own field and charismatic and photogenic and um, and, and all the rest of it um, with their best years ahead of them, I think was always something that we would look for. But you look at the the wide variety of, of different stories. I mean, you still have your number one tennis players and your world-class footballers and everything else, but you now have the likes of Megan Rapinoe, which is an interesting story, obviously a, a world-class football player but that's probably not why she's garnered quite the attention that she has Tyson Fury is another story not another very very different story but somebody who's uh, is presenting a completely different image we're probably going to see more onus on brands who are getting involved to understand what it is that they're trying to accomplish and what story it is that they're trying to tell rather than just slapping a famous face on it than maybe at any point before yeah, I think so. I think so. I think it's, um, you know, now more than ever, I think athletes and, and brands alike really want to at least be seen to stand for something um, and not to merely endorse it um, or, or, you know, attach their, their themselves to it. I think this the, the general uh, trend of, of um, you know, the, the rising athlete voice, whether that's in governance or, you know, the, their power to, to reach broad audiences on, you know, and, and talk about social issues uh political issues uh rapino being uh a perfect example of that um someone who's kind of leveraged their platform to yeah to have a say obviously uh, colin kaepernick not not in the list incidentally that's that's a, another story um and obviously there is um 
risk that goes into that idea of uh, or that practice of, of speaking out around these issues yeah. um, in, in today's kind of highly divided world, I suppose. Um, but um, that's not to say that, they're, you know, consumers, you know, I think consumers now expect that they want uh, to see some level of authenticity there. So I think um, I, I think these issues are, are only growing in importance. and I think they will continue um continue in that vein i think um just I, i'd caveat that there in terms of the complexion of the list and how it has changed obviously yes it has it has changed considerably since 2010 but i think um uh, looking back throughout the years there are a number of things have remained the same and, and remain constant mm. um you know we've had well over 200 athletes i think all in all throughout the years of the list uh, every year, Americans and, and uh, soccer players dominate, and uh, I think that's an illustration and an inevitable kind of reflection, really, of uh, you know, while while storytelling around individuals is important, I think scale and popularity are you know key kind of determining factors for anyone. And as you say, I think you know, any brand marketer, and as you say, I think you, you're always going to have those top level uh, stars in individual sports like tennis and golf. They've always fared well. Um, yeah. But then uh, in certain team sports, like, like football, like the NBA, you know, NBA always been a, uh, you know, perfect stage for kind of really cultivating those individual personalities, perhaps more so than other team sports. Uh, and besides the fact that the NBA itself is this kind of huge global brand, uh, audiences worldwide, sellout crowds, uh, you know, the, the, the ability for its athletes to kind of cross over into other uh, areas like fashion and entertainment, as we've seen more and more. Um you know, it's not for nothing that we've had two NBA players, Steph Curry and LeBron James, uh, top the list over the years. Um, so yes, I think uh, so some of those themes have kind of that have permeated the list throughout the years have have remained the same. Um, but yeah, I think that the, the rise of the athlete as a as a kind of uh, or the rise of the athlete activist as as a kind of social influencer, I, I suppose, is is one of the key trends. You know, given that in the in, when the first list was released in the summer of twenty ten, you know, Instagram hadn't, hadn't launched yet. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the term social inf- influencer in the in the context of athlete marketing or sports marketing generally was was kind of in its infancy. Um, and and then I think the 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 um the elements around which endorsement deals were perhaps built um were slightly different as well i think there was definitely perhaps it was a bit more kind of analog if you like or Mm. or or linear uh you know you had the the conventional elements commercials and and billboards and 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 things like that guest appear you know appearances on on behalf of a corporation but i think that that has evolved with the rise of social media um you know they it's it's all about the content you create around athletes now uh, or with athletes um and how that's distributed uh through various channels and things like that and i think athletes have become as we've kind of tracked over the years athletes more and more aware of their their own value to brands and their own platforms as as kind of content creators uh publishers media investors um sorry equity investors and media kind of publishers in their own right as we've seen various athlete backed platforms come to the fore over the years so i think this is this changed the conversation around what constitutes a marketable athlete i think mm. and i think the list has has gone some way to to reflecting that 
Great. I think confidence and authenticity in that storytelling are going to be crucial with all of those different ways of approaching an audience, both in terms of distribution and in terms of storytelling. Right. I think we will leave it there, Mike. Um, So thank you very much for your time. As I said, we're going to dive into the list with Tom and Sam after the break, and I will speak to you next time. Okay, Sports Pro Podcast, 50 Most Marketable Athletes 2019. Tom Bassam and Sam Karp, welcome back to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hello, Owen. Thank you very much. How are you, how are you Owen? I'm good. I'm good. Um, nice to be in a room with people, as I wasn't for part one. Well, in a lobby. In a lobby with people. Um, we are going to delve into the list now. We've, we've done the kind of overview uh, with Mike in part one. Um, and we're going to look at some of the names that are on there, look at some of the reasons um, for those names being on there, and just think, you know, kind of thematically about athlete marketing and some of the trends that have emerged in 2019 that might be a little bit different from what we've seen in the past. Um, let's start at the top. And as I said to people uh, earlier on in the podcast, makes sense to have read the list first and then listen to this second. But um, Naomi Osaka is the uh, number one on the list this time around. Um, two Grand Slams last year. Yeah, the US Open. Well, that that infamous US Open final against Serena Williams and then the Australian Open, I believe it was earlier this year. Yeah, so across 2018 and 19, establishing herself at the, at the very top end of women's tennis. Has had a, a slightly trickier summer, but certainly someone who looks set for um, a an auspicious career. What, what, what are some of the other factors that make her a really interesting proposition for brands? Uh, I think partly or mostly it was that she has such a broad appeal. Um, I mean, uh, in terms of geographically. Being born in Japan but raised in the US, um, she's clearly got an affinity for people in Asian and US markets, which, I mean, if you can conquer those two then you're doing pretty well um, and yeah the, 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 I think that's really sort of the major part of it she's she's ditched Adidas this year for a big deal with Nike um, they clearly sort of see something they see something in that um, and she's good good mm. at tennis like if, you, if you're good at tennis and you're a big female star I think uh, I think I think the sport's always kind of looking for that next Serena Williams even while Serena Williams is still there uh, and I think that that broad appeal that Tom's spoken about that's kind of re- that's reflected in some of the deals she signed already. So obviously Tom's mentioned their deal with Nike. Um, she's got one with Mastercard as well. But then obviously in Japan she's also signed with Shiseido and Nissan. And obviously over the next twelve months or so, there's going to be a lot of eyeballs on Japan with the Tokyo 2020 Olympics mm. coming up. Um, and also, you know, I think tennis generally as a sport there is sort of an opportunity for someone to really be that star with, um, you know, Federer and Williams reaching the end of their careers. Um, there's no obvious air in the men's game at the moment. Um, so you're even not necessarily just talking about her as, you know, the 
trying not to use that term, the face of women's tennis, but kind of that transcendental star. She can be that one who's not just serving that purpose for women's tennis, but for tennis in general. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's kind of where she appealed for us. And obviously she ties in quite nicely with um, a lot of brands going to be looking to female athletes now to unlock these new audiences. And traditionally, I think the WTA um, has been the most successful in terms of the way it markets its athletes. Um, it's probably been the most commercially successful in women's sport. So, yeah, I think a lot of brands are kind of clamoring to, to secure her signature over the next three years. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, we had her we had her in the list last year um, before she'd even won anything, I think. Um, and then this year, it, she she just it commercially exploded, I think. Like, uh, I mean, when uh, talking about rival publication, but Forbes uh, <laughs> put out their, uh, their list of highest paid female athletes. The figure that struck me wasn't so much the, her on-court earnings, but her off-court earnings. And yeah. She'd gone from not being featured in the top female athletes to being second to Serena Williams, which is pretty staggering in the in a, in a sort of in a span of just a single year. Yeah, yeah, especially when she's still only 21 as well. Um, it's probably easy to forget that, considering you know it does feel like she's been around for a for a while now. Um, although obviously she's only really shot prominence over the past 12 months. She was kind of she wasn't known before then um, so yeah I guess there is a sense and you know with that whole Nike Adidas thing I don't think Nike would have Nike would have been so, wouldn't have been so tempted to oust Adidas if it wasn't convinced that you know she is um, going to play a big part in the future of athlete marketing and um, once uh, as I was saying once Serena goes once Federer goes there's, there's a chance for her to kind of be like there at the Nike athlete yeah and there is a, a I guess a a sense of strong timing with her as well in that we are now beginning to see Serena Williams beaten on the court which is has been rare in the past you know she's not won Grand Slams when she's not been there mm. not even she can manage that but uh, we Osaka beat her last year and she, she lost in the final of Wimbledon as well and the sense that a succession is about to happen is, is kind of palpable mm. uh, although it may still be a year or two before we see that really regularly um, what are some of the things that an athlete in her position or a brand that's signing with an athlete in her position need to be conscious of you know what kind of pitfalls do we think there are um, injuries what kind of challenges do we think there are? well injuries is one for sure yeah, I mean I think within about uh, about 15 minutes of the list going live today I sent Tom a link saying that she was doubting her fitness ahead of the US Open which is kind of the 50 most masterful curse isn't it but yeah I mean that is obviously one of those things which um which brands will be looking at and obviously with women's tennis it's quite rare that um, you get someone winning tournament after tournament obviously mm. the Williams is, the Williams sisters have dominated um, the past sort of 10 15 years but uh, there will be that challenge it's highly unlikely that she'll come to you know dominate the sport in the same way that they have uh, so a big challenge for her and obviously the brands that work with her will be sort of you know trying to overcome those periods where maybe she does go through um, periods of not necessarily failure, but not not winning titles on the court, and you know, ensuring that she still does retain some of that good well, goodwill mm. um, with the audience that they're marketing to. Yeah, I, I guess as well, it's a, an example of a, another female tennis player that's top the fifty most marketable is Eugenie Bouchard. I mean, actually, I think Nike would probably be still quite happy with the work that she does for them. Like, mm. she might not be up there in the tennis rankings anymore, but in terms of her appeal on social media and mm. her interaction with her followers and sort of. Uh, yeah, what she provides for them as a marketeer, I think that they're probably still pretty pretty happy with what they've got. So it's about 
a tone, I think, for a lot of brands and what kind of um, what kind of image you can present of yourself. Whilst Bouchard isn't a, a top athlete in in the way that she was when she first broke through, she's still uh, an attractive proposition because she can, yeah, because she gets she's engaging. Mm. And I think um, you know some of these athletes can go one way or the other sometimes. Whereas it seems with Osaka that she does have this willingness to be marketed while sort of being able to retain that high level of performance on the court. I mean, obviously, recently it hasn't been so much, but actually when I spoke to Mickey Lawler, the WTA president, she was saying how she was, you know, kind of astonished that someone at such a young age was able to, to find that balance so well with all the attention that she's getting, with all these deals she'd already signed, while at the same time being able to... Um, while at the same time being able to, rip, to win Grand Slams, it kind of it does feel as if the, she's um, she is one of these unique talents who is going to be able to find that right sort of equilibrium between the two, rather than necessarily falling down, rather than necessarily falling down at the expense of the other. Yeah, I think she, I think she, I think also she comes across uh, as quite an honest uh, athlete. Like um, she sort of came out on social media and posted about her struggles over the summer, over uh, the French Open in Wimbledon, um, and talked about how she wasn't happy playing tennis on court, and then after kind of an upturn in results and a sort of slight change in uh, sort of attitude and approach, she was sort of talking about again how she was happy playing tennis again and how it was making her smile and how, that's, how she wants to feel. And I think, uh, I think that's now what people, especially young people, engage with is, yeah. is, like, is, uh, is an honesty from the icons and the athletes that they look at on a day-to-day basis yeah okay well we're gonna be able to read a bit more on uh, Naomi Osaka I think it's the end of this week we've got a feature um, involving her team and herself um, about brand Osaka and also about building that career ahead of her balancing some of those challenges that you guys have just been talking about but below that there are a lot of very interesting names on the list um, and I think you know, this is a sense that Mike and I were talking about it in the in the first part, but um, it's a sense that's grown over the the ten editions of this feature that we've done. But that there are really disparate athlete stories that now can be told with the help of brands, or you know, um, that brands can capitalise on. And there are a few examples of that in in the list. I think number two and number four, Raheem Sterling and, and Megan Rapinoe are probably. Um, to the highest profile athletes in the in the past 12 months or so in that respect but there, there are quite a few um, who have a bit of a, a social voice a bit of you know consciousness that they still feel comfortable exercising um, while not vacating that kind of commercial space yeah I think uh, probably the most interesting one or the one that kind of generated the most conversation between us all when we were putting together this list and probably generated most of the conversation during the sporting summer was Megan Rapinoe. Um, obviously because you look at her age, uh, she's not a natural sort of fit for this list. Um, but because of how she sort of grabs hold of the cultural relevance of this summer's Women's World Cup, like probably no other player that was there in terms of the way she spoke out about equal pay, mm. um, championing gay rights, taking on Donald Trump. It was all stuff that really, really resonated with people that were watching. and. Um, I mean, she's a polarizing figure. There's no doubt about that. I mean, not everyone likes her, but at the same time, that generates conversation, and it's it's kind of it's creating this new way for brands to tell stories, which aren't just necessarily, you know, aimed at 
as wide an audience as possible. It's a targeted audience. It's yeah. um, something that is going to generate that conversation and it is going to sort of keep them uh, in sort of that public consciousness for a long time. Yeah, well, this is one element of it is that she's polarizing, but probably not mm -hmm. among the people that specific brands are going to target. I think that's probably the lesson of, you know, the Colin Kaepernick exercise with Nike last summer. Yeah, I, I also think she likes attention. And I don't mean that in a negative way. She mm. talks about it quite openly on uh, the sort of myriad different uh, talk shows she's been on <laughs> since the World Cup final. Um, she like she likes being the, the person that people look at and also has something to say. Mm. Um, you get sometimes you get people that like having like having people look at them and have nothing to say, whereas she has both, mm. um, which I think makes her a sort of yeah an interesting an interesting figure for for parties and yeah I think there's there are like you say there's a certain type of people but certain type of brands or a certain type of um, partner want to work with her but there's a big enough space for that kind of brand and big enough space for that kind of partner to, to work to work in I think these days and I yeah. think yeah the, the Kaepernick effect is part of that yeah I mean one of the first stops that she did on that quite extensive post World Cup tour of, uh, of media outlets was, was Pod Save America. I don't know if you guys are aware of Pod Save America, um, which functions as a kind of, you know, bit of Trump catharsis, but also a, a fundraising outlet for democratic races across the US. They have lots of advertisers because they have lots of listeners. Um, and, you know, I think that that is a space that somebody like a Megan Rapinoe is going to be quite interesting in for the next few years as, as brands kind of work that out okay if we have a cause that we want to be affiliated to is there a way that we can you know uh, align our interests and the market that we're after with that particular cause and, and, and so on the other thing is you know you talked about her age I guess on the flip side of, of that is that there are still stories that are going to unfold that she's going to be oh, for sure. quite a major voice and equal pay being one which is going yeah. to drag into 2020. And I mean, I think it's easy to underestimate how big a sporting brand the US women's national team is. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, maybe this side of the pond won't kind of realise exactly how, how significant that fight is over there in the States, you know, because traditionally they've been so much more successful than the men's team um, and it is it's like it, the, uh, that fight is a gen that has a genuine cause there's a reason for it they've um, supposedly generated more revenue um, they've obviously won the most recent women's world cup and they have kind of been responsible for driving a lot of growth of that sport in the country um, so obviously if she's the sort of elder statesman of that side she is going to be visible for a long time beyond just this summer and we also spoke about how there's deal with the Olympics next year coming out should be featuring at that so it's not kind of I think a lot of people would see her inclusion maybe as a knee-jerk reaction to mm. what's happened this summer but I don't think it is I think these conversations are going to be relevant for a lot longer and you know just speaking broadly about this sort of going back to sort of cause marketing and the inclusion of people like Rapino, uh, Sterling, Tyson Fury I think that particularly resonates at the moment in places like the US and the UK you know where it's both places where you know people are kind of divided at the moment um and in politics they're not really seeing people who reflect what they believe in so mm. you know they're looking for they're looking for role models they're looking for people who do kind of embody those values and i think a lot of people who feel disillusioned with the way their country's being run or whatever else um and now finding that in in people like Rufino, in people like sterling who are actually standing up for some of the things that they believe in well, what's what's the again what's the other side of this what are 
some of the uh, some of the the challenges that are out there? How do you make this work? How do you make it feel authentic, for want of a better expression? Yeah, I mean, because I I wrote something about this in a column not long ago, and one of the kind of one of the responses to it was along the lines of they shouldn't necessarily be accepting dollars to promote these values, um, and I think you know some of the some of the ads that Rapino has appeared in have been kind of you know they've been quite explicit in the messages that they've given it's not kind of hidden the fact that she's maybe accepting money to promote these things which I kind of I think is in keeping with her character anyway I don't think that's I don't think um, I don't think that makes it feel any less authentic and you know my sort of response to that would be they're going to be promoting these things anyway why not give them a greater platform to do so if the messages mm. that they're promoting are the right ones or not necessarily the ones that, that people can get behind and ones that people are going to agree with um, so I mean yeah there is always going to be that challenge to to make it look like it isn't just a marketing play um, but I guess I or if it is that well, people yeah. shouldn't be if it is, too anxious about that yeah but I think a lot of that will be I think a lot of the, one of the ways to overcome that will be in letting the the athletes guide a lot of that. You know, mm-hmm. it's it felt like when Sterling did that one did that ad with the ad placement with Nike after he came out and spoke about uh, about the racism he'd been a victim of at, um, during that game at Chelsea last season. It kind of it felt quite na- a natural progression for that to be released after that. Um, so you know, I think rather than forcing it in people's faces, it kind of has to be it needs to be a natural response to. Uh, kind of events mm. and you know uh, topics of conversation it has to be quite reactive I think um, yeah I, the, the other thing to that would be just making sure that it's the right brand for that person mm-hmm. um, I think if you I think if you are say a, a member of the women, US Women's National Team and you are I don't know aligning yourself with, with brands that are, perhaps don't fit with that profile then I think that's where you op- that's where you um, open yourself up for open yourself up for criticism and perhaps you might uh, yeah, that's where you, that's where problems might arise. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, uh, just off the top of my head, I can't, I can't, I don't see why a member of the US Women's National Team would uh, naturally align with something like Papa John's, which is obviously on a massive reclamation project in in America at the moment. That would be a misstep. So I think it would be, I think it would be sort of yeah, making sure you choose who you work with carefully and not just taking money because you feel like you deserve you deserve to get paid just because yeah, you're, yeah you've got that position and you've earned it. Yeah. Yeah, which I guess is, you know, that's pretty fundamental endorsement 101 stuff, but mm. applied to a, a different set of contexts that people generally stayed away from in the past. Mm. The, yeah, I think, I think the uh, prime example actually would have been Kristen Press, who came back from the World Cup and started doing endorsement deal and started working with uh, Barstool Sports, which mm. obviously has uh, very little in common with the, uh, with the goals of the US Women's National Team. Um, uh, the, I guess the other thing in... in this conversation is that people are getting more used to the idea of brands as owners of media space. You know, if you if you're doing stuff in social channels, if you're doing stuff, um, you know, Red Bull are the kind of pioneers of this. But more and more brands are just able to support initiatives and give athletes a platform to do something. Um, the name in the list that who has the thing that he's done in the last couple of years that's been most exciting has been powered by the support of a couple of brands, Nike initially and, and now Ineos, who, whose involvement I, I'm not entirely sure is, is quite as um, as well aligned, but we shall see how, how all of that turns out. But uh, that is Elia Kipchoge, um, 
who I, I feel like that's it's a different kind of story but in a very different sense it's, it's a sporting story but of a type that there is now room to carry you know someone who's set a goal outside of the context of the Olympics and world championships and everything else that um, would normally define an athlete's success and, uh, and, and, and is tying an awful lot of his identity to the pursuit of that goal yeah I think it's a particularly interesting one because that's the thing that we always talk about with regards to Olympic athletes is how they're going to you know remain in the spotlight or get any kind of publicity outside of those two weeks when they're everywhere um, and obviously with the case of Kipchoge um, he's kind of been given this platform to do so and the task that he's taking on is obviously something that doesn't just interest um doesn't necessarily just interest people who like sport it interests people who you know um it's a news bulletin it's, item. yeah it is exactly it's kind of it's a headline and it's um and i think that was kind of reflected in how many people sort of latched on to when he did it the first time and you know the fact that he even failed perhaps creates a better story second time round um for if he's actually going to go on and break that record mm. it's almost sort of like using the boxing model for other sports so yeah you're, you're setting something up as like, why should people care about this for, for any given thing? And brands are, you are seeing that as an opportunity to latch onto um, in a way that they have done with boxing previously, but now they can find ways of doing it in uh, with yeah, Kipchoge or with the match with Tiger, yeah. Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. Like those are sort of these are things that fall outside of regular sporting calendars, but actually people will be interested in. But and people can and brands can get involved. Enjoying this Sports Pro podcast? Well, we're also the sports industry leader in print, digital, and events. Head to sportspromedia.com for the latest features, news, and interviews from the business of sport. Help yourself to a subscription to our acclaimed magazine and find out about our unmissable conferences before anyone else. Get inside the industry with Sports Pro. Moving the conversation on a bit, let's look at some of the new faces in this list. Lots of new faces as there typically are. Uh, given some of the criteria, you know, we've got the likes of um, Zion Williamson, who is the number one draft pick in the NBA. A lot of excitement, a lot of chatter about his, his shoes during the college season last year. Uh, Joffrey Archer, who's been attracting a lot of attention here in the UK over the last couple of months, winning the Cricket World Cup and exploding um, into the Ashes series for England. Some people who were on the list last year, Kylian Mbappe um, and Chloe Kim, for example. What is it that makes people sit up and take notice of a younger athlete like that and, and think that there is something different about them that goes beyond being a, a young talent who is you know, going to have an established sporting career? I think uh, in the cases, uh, case of Archer and um, Williamson, it's, it's about kind of how explosively they arrived. Um, there's, there's often defining moments for them. I mean, I think people had heard of Joffre Archer in cricketing circles before he played in the World Cup, but that was a real explosion on the, on the international stage. And Zion Williamson last year in, in college was just, I think it's such a unique, such a unique thing, US college sports, in that like these guys are amateurs, uh, essentially. Um, but they are presented and play and look like professionals. So you get this kind of you get this kind of big preview, and it allows a allows a hype train to kind of build mm. over 
over the course of a over the course of several months. So when you get to the you get to the the NBA draft, and that itself that in itself is great at creating a platform for someone like that. So you've got lots of analysts talking about this person who isn't yet able to sign any kind of contract or any kind of professional deal. So it, it's got sort of like it feels like a slow build into a into something where you get a real chance to preview what someone's going to be like as a as a professional athlete, and then you get that one moment where that's it. Suddenly they are they are a big thing, and the thing with Zion Williamson is that I mean everyone wants to make LeBron comparisons all the time, and I think it's a but that previous previous to that was always let's make Michael Jordan comparisons and yeah when you have something someone like that who is so explosive and does something that is, is so like intimidating and great to watch on TV yeah you kind of you have that uh, expectation built mm. and I think that's that's really kind of the case with both of them actually is that we were waiting 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 and then something happened and that was it and then yeah. they were suddenly there yeah I think um I think also it's just the way that you know they they bring people in. I think Archer has been a really good example of that in the sense that if you just watched his debut at Lords, his Test cricket debut this weekend at Lords, um, I mean I wasn't there, but even just watching on the TV, there was a noticeable sort of rise in energy whenever he had the ball in his hand and was just casually flicking it from one to another. And it's just you know the ability, just having those glimpses of someone who is able to do the extraordinary. Um, relatively regularly um, and Archer obviously is this guy who sort of jogs in from a 10 step run up and then sends down these 95 mile an hour bullets <laughs> and mm. um, it's the kind of thing which gets people off their seats Williamson as well he has the ability to you know charge through people and slam dunk like <laughs> every 5-10 minutes and Chloe Kim somebody who can form these outrageous tricks um, Kylian Mbappe had that breakthrough moment at the World Cup last year you know they're just kind of as Tom says, there's that explosive element where they immediately kind of get to that next level of the sport. But I think, particularly in the cases of these young athletes, uh, it was interesting because I've just jumped off the phone speaking to someone in the US, Darren Heitner, about, about Zion Williamson. And he's saying, obviously, there are those comparisons with LeBron, but what's different in terms of his, in terms of his brand proposition is that he's breaking through in this kind of social media age. Yeah. Um, so, obviously... And he said, "What's really going to drive the value of his endorsement deals is those four hundred thousand Twitter followers, those four million Instagram followers that he has, which really can drive people to, you know, to make purchases and sort of align themselves with a brand that he might be representing." Um, and I think if you look across all of those athletes that we've just mentioned, Chloe Kim, for example, at the Olympics last year, um, obviously what she was doing on a sporting level was incredible, but she, at the same time she was tweeting about being hangry and. <laughs> You know that kind of can we call them Gen Z yet? Is that is that what they are? Some I think those those guys are Gen, Gen Z. Z are. Yeah. Okay, great. So um, yeah, they kind of they are reaching out to that massive Gen Z audience, which um, which brands really are trying to reach. And by all accounts, Williamson is the same. He's this really personable character. Archer, for example, I think already. <laughs> um, yeah, he's charmed, kind of, charmed a lot of people. Yeah, just with his tweets from 2015, 2016. <laughs> so you know it's there is that kind of explosive element of breaking onto the scene, but now there's different ways for these young young athletes to kind of become more attractive brands as well. Yeah, and what's what's interesting about all of those guys and whether this is directly related to social media or whether that's because, you know, and, and the kind of practice of broadcasting yourself and having an idea of who you are kind of externally from an external locus 
because you live that way every day through your teens um, or whether it's this has just given them a platform to showcase their natural kind of sense of self and their natural comfort in their own skin they all seem to have arrived and felt like they belong on that stage in that environment not just on the field but off the field as well and just that, that sense of ease with their responsibilities uh, away from away from the sporting side of things I think it goes back to what we were saying about Osaka earlier as well just kind of being able to find that balance and doing it in a way I'm sure it's not easy but making it look easy as you were saying there and you know I think there's a number of people in this list who um, they're not necessarily the best at their sport so I, I don't know you maybe include people like Archer and Chloe Kim because they are still representing those new sports where you do kind of have to reach that level mm. to even be recognised off off outside of your sporting uh, sporting stage as well um, whereas if you sort of delve a little deeper into the major leagues you've got um, people in the list like Juju Smith-Schuster who is the best player on his team at the moment Tom you know better than I do um, I mean he's certainly the number one wide receiver now uh, oh yeah but you know he's not he's not necessarily sort of top 10 players in the NFL no. um, but because he has all this crossover appeal um, he is one of the most attractive yeah. positions in the league for for brands, um, just trying to think of a few other examples. I mean, yeah, I think Cody Bellinger is another one a bit mm. like that, who's kind of got quite a just a hot profile on on, on social media. And yeah, you could like, major league baseball is massive. You could you pick anyone. Um, we've got a big name like Aaron Judge in there, but mm. Mike Trout, mm. biggest name, but like biggest thing in baseball in terms of on-field performance, like it's really a non-entity from marketing perspective. Yeah. But you get these other guys that are able to touch a few more. Bases. Yeah, I mean, Aaron Judge was probably in this position 18 months, two years ago, where he was kind of the watch this talent. Um, and I guess what, what differentiates him from some of the other kind of uh, most accomplished performers in, in MLB is that, for one thing, he's like six foot seven or six foot eight. So, yeah. and you know, he hits the ball really far, which is just what it's same with. with you know what, what we've talked about with some of these other guys it's it's something that someone outside of the sport can come in mm. watch for five minutes and go I get that I get yeah. why people are excited about this guy's talent yeah and I think it's you know it also shows that while we always talk about the ways that this list is evolving uh, there, are, there are still some of the original elements which ring particularly true I mean you look at we're talking about draft picks maybe you go back to Conor McDavid maybe who was in the list like mm. two or three years in a row um, came in with probably in hockey terms anyway as much hype as Williamson he was getting in comparisons to Sidney Crosby um, and he has proved to be an unbelievable player but he just doesn't have that same willingness to be marketed which is obviously one of the criteria we go by so this year I think that was part of the reason that he dropped out and then you bring in someone like Austin Matthews who still is a little bit lower down the list because the NHL as a league is still trying to you know really find those find those stars which sort of transcend it and can actually make their way into the mainstream in the same way that someone from the NBA does or someone from the NFL. Um, so someone like Austin Matthews, who is equally right up there in terms of in terms of performance, but also um, has a much stronger social media presence. Um, Shows a willingness. Yeah, well, basically. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I guess if again, just looking at it from um, the other side of the table, if if you're a brand. You don't want to pile in too much on somebody like this. You don't want to. You don't want to look like 
you know, the villain in a coming of age story or something like that. Uh, you don't want to, you don't want to latch onto something that's not really there. Yeah, yeah. I think um, so. Obviously, with these guys who sort of do burst, uh, burst prominence, I think obviously what they'll get is a lot of knocks at the door. So Williamson, for example, as soon as he turns pro, he'll have loads of brands clamoring around him. Archer, for example, his uh, his representatives, I imagine, will be receiving a lot of calls on yeah, the back his, of this summer. His next IPL season will be very interesting. Yeah, Chloe Kim would have been the same after the Winter Olympics. Um, Kylian Mbappe, I'm sure, has never been short of a endorsement proposition or two. Um, so I suppose that's where you know their agents really come in and sort of you know guiding them through that sort of um, off-field space and helping them pick the brands that are right fit for them. Um, and it just like like you were saying, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of making sure it aligns and you know being able to make sure that what these athletes athletes are being offered is actually a genuine commitment to them rather than an attempt to lobby off what they're doing at the moment. So even if they are you know going to be a sort of two or three year wonder, that that brand is still going to stick by them in the future. Yeah, I guess uh, actually an, an interesting kind of uh, person to look at. And what happens from here on in is uh, is Anthony Joshua, who has been a former number one, uh, and obviously had a lot of brand partnerships coming in as a result of that. I mean, yeah, you look at him; he's a kind of walking billboard occasionally. Um, but now he's had that sort of that first real knock on his career. Uh, and, I mean, I don't think anyone's going to be ditching him anytime soon. But uh, similarly, if if it doesn't go if it doesn't go well. Mm these bands might have looked at it and thought, wow, we put a lot of money into this guy and actually he had a bit, he ended up being what was a very short run and a bit of sort of an empty promise, but um, um, by no means outing Anthony Joshua's long-term ability, <laughs> please don't hurt me, Anthony. Um, <laughs> but it, it's, that's one way you'd be interested to track how it sort of goes over the next couple of years. Yeah, yeah. And I think we, you know, you, you don't need to look far through previous lists for people who've have had a lot of, a lot of excitement around them been at various stages of their careers and it it's flattened out either commercially in terms of the wider media interest or in terms of their performance mm. but there are some for whom that hasn't been the case and they're still represented um in the 2019 rankings you know the the kind of out and out superstars the established forces in their sports the likes of Stephen Curry is is still knocking about and the the 2016 number 1 I think he was um, Alex Morgan, who's been in several editions of this list. Um, Harry Kane, who's a bit younger, but kind of probably fits that bill by now. Virat Kohli, very much the established superstar in, in, in his sport with quite a, a lot of legs left. Odell Beckham Jr. What's different from their perspective? You know, if you're someone who's had five or ten years at the very, very top, if you're very much a fixture in in popular discourse and you know people will understand who you are even if they're not excited by who you are outside of your sport you have long-held brand relationships that have been quite effective how do you keep the profile of somebody like that energized how do you how do you keep it from going stale i guess um this kind of applies to most of the people out there apart from maybe odell beckham is um this is just avoiding becoming a nauseating presence uh, if you see someone all the time you don't want to be annoyed by seeing that person all the time. Um, I think I, what kind of is relatively true about uh, Harry Kane, Steph Curry, and Mira Coley this summer, she really made a real effort to become the nice guy. Mm -hmm. and, and 
Alex Morgan similarly are like they're not sort of like it's a very English uh, phrase they're not Marmite yeah like you like them pretty much because they're nice people uh, and that kind of quite that gives you a bit quite a lot of longevity someone so for example like Neymar is really still seen this turn against him I mean, mm. he's dropped out of the list completely this year um, I mean that's that's for a number of reasons not just because he's sort of his, his media personalities and fallen off a little bit but yeah he'd, he'd become at last year's World Cup some, somewhat of a figure of um, ire for lots of people yeah. uh, and that's not that's not that attractive I don't think and it's not something you want to always attach yourself to I mean sometimes you sometimes it can work in your favour if you're a if you're a, like to play the heel but long term success and for long term success in partnerships the, yeah you need to, that person needs to be likeable for a long period of time yeah I think also um, this is going to sound like a really simple way of putting it but just success yeah um, I mean you look at Steph Curry he's still winning obviously not this year but still competing in NBA finals uh, Coley is still one of the best players if not the best batsman in the world uh, Alex Morgan's just another, won another Women's World Cup Harry Kane is about to captain England at a Euro uh, Euros and then likely the 2022 World Cup as well um, so you know it's just kind of remaining in the spotlight and I know that some athletes have dropped out in the past despite still remaining in that spotlight but it also depends you know which, which market you're in which sport you're playing in and yeah there's also, a value for money proposition yeah. as well and sometimes you know there's it can be a matter of timing I think Alex Morgan for one could have maybe dropped out of the list this year if it hadn't necessarily been for the momentum behind women's sport at the moment and I think you know when we were looking at which women to add in which um, when we were putting this together it's still kind of in that niche stage it's still um, you know people are still sort of developing sort of nascent knowledge of, of women's sport it's not something which is very well known so you do kind of have to go with the with the more well-known stars which is why the likes of Arda Hegerberg are in there uh, which is why Rapino is in there which is why we've kept Morgan in I, I mm. guess because you know they are still the ones which people know best and there is still a lot of there is still a lot of knowledge to be built up around women's sport before yeah. you can generally consider them to yeah. be as marketable as people are hoping that they're going to be yeah and I think it'll be interesting in, in women's football how the club game develops and, and how the game develops between these temple summer events and I think that players like that are going to have a huge role in developing that identity um, the, just to, to pick up on your point about becoming someone people like if you're, if you're around for that long, what's really interesting is um, what's really fascinating is when you look at people who are heels in their playing career and the number one example probably in any sport is, is John McEnroe who's gone from being, he was the archetypal bad boy you know irritant of, of tennis and is now like everyone's favorite uncle his, his kind of media presence is he's still got that glint in his eye but he doesn't actively go out of his way to antagonize people and the result is that he's still a, a fairly marketable presence way into his post-career tiger woods is probably another interesting one in that respect and that he's kind of come back round, and you know people have remembered why they enjoy him i guess yeah yeah i think with tiger woods though i mean Maybe this is just a personal opinion, but I never thought he was a nice guy. Uh, <laughs> like he's great at golf. Uh, I don't think anyone. I don't think he's sort of. That was because he was a, a lovable character like Jack Nicklaus. He's a driven winner, mm. uh, and it's a little bit similar. But like Brooks Koepka actually is kind of similar in that in that regard. Like 
um, ruthless. Uh, and maybe that's just the sport that they play. It's such a singular, such a singular-minded thing. Um, but I think people have an affection for Tiger Woods just because they like watching Tiger uh, Woods. They like watching Tiger Woods. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep. Right then. Let's let's take in some of the. Um, let's head into the any other business section of the discussion. Any names, guys, who you feel it's worth bringing up because they're on their way out of the list, or their 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 appeal is um, uh, is on the descent, or equally any that you think are bubbling under, who we might be talking a bit more about in in the years ahead. I think an interesting one is Noah Loyal, who who's he's kind of lower down on the list this year. Uh, he's a US sprinter. Um, basically, we include him because you know there's there's always been this gap um, in track and field since Usain Bolt ret- retired. Um, there was De Grasse from Canada, who people thought might fill that void, uh, but obviously he got held back by injury. I know that he featured quite high up on this list a couple of years ago. Um, but Lyle is a guy who's running these really fast times he um, I think he did the 200 metres basically the fourth fastest ever behind Bolt himself Michael Johnson and Johan Blake which is pretty esteemed company to be mm-hmm. in um, and you know he's just he, he's quite he's a bit of a character as well he turns up in these uh, he's renowned for his colourful socks uh, which doesn't directly make you marketable but it sure helps um, especially if you're marketing to, <laughs> marketing to a guy called Tom Batten but, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah just I think that's an interesting story to follow going into Tokyo 2020 because um, it'll obviously be the first Olympics post-Bolt um, and it'll be interesting to see who kind of takes up that mantle if yeah. anyone can yeah. um, and I think stateside especially a few people are going kind to of tip in him to to make a run for that yeah well world, world athletics championships of course yes this year well. which will tee um a few people up potentially yeah yeah on that sort of same well, exactly the same thing and um, it's not not bubbling under she's in the top 10 but dina asher smith is uh is someone that we she sort of snuck in last year um and then had sort of put in some very big performances in the european championships last summer and I mean, I think in probably a slightly GB perspective, but she, you always want someone like that, and she's definitely going to be the, the, the sort of uh, the athlete that gets the most support from in this country. And yeah, that that's a that is a big profile. Like, yeah, that's a that's a big thing to carry, and she's good too. Further down, I think there's uh, like another one that's sort of very very low, but could could rise because actually there's not lots of people in cycling who. That exciting is Egan Bernal. Um, obviously, she's just won the Tour de France. Like that, that's not really flying under the radar as such. <laughs> uh, it's interesting with those kind of with 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 cyclists like that. He doesn't seem like the kind of not like a Peter Sagan, who's quite a gregarious character. Uh, and it's whether or not he'll have a have a have a sort of appeal outside of the niche of cycling, but he'll certainly be big in South America. Yeah, yeah, cycling. There's a there's there's almost like a way that some cyclists are able to manipulate the visuals of the sport but sprinters always do particularly well because they're usually the guys crossing the line um, if you think of Mark Cavendish a few years ago was a, a big breakout star in part because he'd done track but also because whenever there was a photo on the newspaper front or back page there was Mark Cavendish with his hands in the air um, but I think yeah that, that's another element I guess of um, uh, of marketability in sport is how you're able to break through the lines of 
of what your sport is. Um, anything else that you'd highlight? The one person that was flagged up, um, actually by you, Sam, was uh, Tyson Fury. Um, it's quite a sort of, again, not a, not the kind of profile of athlete, older, um, checkered past to say the least, uh, <laughs> but has has got that kind of quite. He's got a bit of a different story yeah. coming into the list as someone that's an advocate for mental health recovery and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, but also still just, uh, I guess his appeal is, comes a lot from the way that people view him through his his social media. Like it, it's He's not polished. Yeah. He's not, um, he's not got someone running a, a very slick PR operation around him. He's just... A, a, a gypsy traveller who has a very raw approach to how he deals with like being a, a widely known personality. And yeah, so that resonates with certain people. And yeah, and watchable, very watchable in his own way. Yeah, mm. his uh, very own way. <laughs> I mean, uh, you can. I think people will have differing opinions on it, but his last ring entrance when he comes into living in America, uh, dressed like uh, just like Apollo Creed. I mean. That, that for me is great. That, <laughs> it's it almost like they forever. Yeah, almost like the things that he used to do that made us cringe now make you smile. But <laughs> yeah, I guess it's like a, it's like it's almost like an aging dad whose flaws you come to appreciate. <laughs> and that is marketable. <laughs> hey man, there are a lot of dads out there. The world's most marketable dads. Twenty twenty idea maybe, but we are going to leave it at that. Uh, for the 2019 list. Um, lots of coverage around athlete marketability on sportspromedia.com this week. I know that we have obviously the, the profile of Naomi Osaka, who we, we talked about. Um, we've got a bit on Andy Murray just sticking with tennis and his uh, his transition or his, his path towards a kind of legacy uh, plan from his career and his potential on-court comeback. What else have we got, guys? Uh, I'm going to be looking at a sort of a slightly different top ten, um, leaning more heavily on Hookett's, uh, Hookett's data and their the way they score uh, athletes on social media. Uh, I think you've got a, a, a yeah, I've got a bit a couple of bits. Um, be kind of looking at building the brand of a number one draft pick with kind of a special look at uh, Zion Williamson. Obviously, he featured at number three this year, and then a an interview with. Wasserman about the launch of the collective, their new, uh, their new specialised women's division. So kind of looking at you know raising the profile of female athletes and how that's going to look going forward. Great stuff. Look forward to that. Um, thanks very much for your time, guys. Reminder as ever to everyone: if you want to uh, like or share our stuff on social or add a review, a nice review, positive review on uh, iTunes or your preferred podcast channel, then please do. It will help us out a lot. But yeah, for now, thank you very much to Sam Carp. Thank you, Owen. Cheers. And to Tom Bassam. Thank you very much. And to all of you for listening. Bye-bye.